Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Welcome, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Woohoo, Which is a monthly reading series that's been going on for over 10 years, probably over 15 years. I'm not sure how long, but very long. And um, every month we try to have some interesting readers for you in science fiction, fantasy, or horror. And uh, we do this for, we, we, have this venue for free, and all the bar asks is that you buy drinks, either alcoholic or non. You know, just support the bar, and we can continue doing this forever, perhaps, or until we can't stand it anymore. <laughs> or you can't stand it anymore. Anyway, I'm Ellen Datlow, and my co-curator is Matthew Kressel. Um, we have, I'll mention who we have coming up right now. Um, as December 17th, we have Rajan Khanna, who is here, who's a local. Oops. And Stephen Gould. Ah, that's better. That's up. Oh, that's louder. I have to just talk into it. But then I can't do that. Yeah. All right. You're gonna have to deal with this, Nancy. You're gonna have to figure out reading and talking to the thing at the same time. Um, January 21st, Andy Duncan and Gregory Frost. February 18th, Mike Allen and Ben Lurie. March 18th, Lisa Minetti and Caitlin R. Kiernan. It'll be her last appearance for a while, Caitlin's, because she's moving from Providence down back south um, after the, soon after that. Uh, April 15th, Ken Liu and James Morrow. May 20th, Wesley Chu, who has just sold a three-book, has just gotten a three-book contract for novels, which is very nice, and TK. And uh, that's all we, we have other people scheduled, but we have gaps right now, so... Um, right now, we also have Word Bookstore sells books for our readers, and they've got books by both Nancy Kress and Jack Skillenstead, who are reading tonight. Um, they have Jack's Life on the Preservation, and they have Nancy Kress's Yesterday's Kin, which is which just came out last, uh, I guess, in September. So our first reader... What is, I can't see. Are you there? And Jack also ha- has, although you will mention that again. Yes, But yes, he will be... Um, reading from and will have books for sale from his collection called uh, Are You There and Other Stories. I found it, I found it. <laughs> anyway, our first reader tonight is Nancy Cress, who's the author of 33 books, including 26 novels, four collections of short stories, and three books on writing. Her work has won five Nebulas, two Hugos, a Sturgeon Award, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. Nancy's most recent work is Yesterday's Kin, about genetic inheritance. In addition to writing, Cress often teaches at various venues around the country and abroad. In 2008, she was the Picador, write, uh, sorry, Picador Visiting Lecturer at the University of Leipzig. So please welcome Nancy Cress. Thank you, Alan. I think I'm taller than you are. 
Hey. And I'm wearing boots, and I'm <laughs> she says she's wearing boots and she doesn't understand why I'm taller than she is. Genetics, which is what I'm going to read about tonight. <laughs> Thank you for the segue. I'm going to read from yesterday's I, kin. I think she's not talk, you're not talking into the mic enough. I've got to turn all the way up. Am I not loud enough? Nobody's ever accused, nobody's ever accused me of not being loud enough. I, I'm going to read from yesterday's kin, which is a standalone novella that came out two months ago from Tachyon. And like much of my work, it does concern genetic engineering because I think that this is not only the wave of the future, but fascinating to me personally. So, from yesterday's kin, this is the opening. All right, let's see if we can do it. All right. S minus 10.5 months. Marianne. The publication party was held in the dean's office, which was supposed to be an honor. Oak-paneled room, sherry and little glasses, small-paned windows facing the quad. The room was trying hard to be a common someplace like Oxford or Cambridge, a task for which it was several centuries too late. The party was trying hard to look festive. Marianne's colleagues, except for Evan and the dean, were trying hard not to look too envious or at their watches. Stop it, Evan said at her from behind the cover of his raised glass. Stop what, Marianne said. Stop pretending you hate this. I hate this, Marianne said. You don't. He was half right. She didn't like parties, but she was proud of her paper, which had been achieved despite two years of gene sequencers that kept breaking down, inept graduate students who contaminated samples with their own DNA, murmurs of lucky find from Bascal, whom she'd never gotten along with. Bascal, an old guard physicist, saw her as a bitch who refused to defer to rank or to back down gracefully in an argument. Many people Marianne knew saw her as some variant of this. The list included two of her three grown children. Outside the open casements, students lounged on the grass in the mellow October sunshine. Three girls in cut-off jeans played frisbee, leaping at the blue flying saucer and checking to see if the boys sitting on the stone wall were watching. Feinberger Davidson from physics walked by, arguing amiably. Marianne wished she were out with them instead of at her own party. Oh, God, she said to Evan, Curtis just walked in. The president of the university made his ponderous way across the room. Once he had been a historian, which might be why he reminded Marianne of Henry VIII. <laughs> now he was a campus politician, as power-mad as Henry, but stuck at a second-rate university where there wasn't much power to be had. Marianne held against him not his personality but his mind. Unlike Henry, he was not all that bright. And he spoke in cliches. Dr. Jenner, he said, congratulations, a feather in your cap and a credit to us all. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Curtis, Marianne said. Oh, Ed, please. Ed, she didn't offer her own first name, curious to see if he remembered it. He didn't. Marianne sipped her sherry. Evan jumped into the awkward silence. I'm Dr. Blanford, visiting postdoc, he said in his plummy British accent. We're also proud of Marianne's work. Yes, Dr. Curtis said, and I'd love for you to explain to me your innovative process, uh, Marianne. He didn't have a clue. His secretary had probably reminded him that he had to put in an appearance at the party. Dean of Science's office, 4.30 Friday, in honor of that publication by Dr. Jenner, in, quick look at her email, in Nature, very prestigious, none of our scientists has published there before. Oh, Marianne said as Evan poked her discreetly in the side, play nice. 
It wasn't so much an innovation in process as an unexpected results from a known procedures. My assistants and I discovered a new haplogroup of mitochondrial DNA. Previously, it was thought that Homo sapiens consisted of 30 haplogroups, and we found a 31st. Evans said helpfully, by sequencing a sample of contemporary genes, you know, sequencing and verifying. Anything said in upper crust British automatically sounds intelligent, and Dr. Curtis looked suitably impressed. Of course, he said, of course, splendid results, a star in your crown. <laughs> it's yet another haplogroup descended, Evans said with malicious helpfulness, from humanity's common female ancestor 150,000 years ago, mitochondrial Eve. Dr. Curtis brightened. There had been a TV program about mitochondrial Eve, Marianne remembered, featuring a buxom actress in a leopard skin sarong. <laughs> oh, yes, he said. Wasn't that... I'm sorry, you can't go in there, someone shrilled. In the corridor outside the room, all conversation ceased. Heads swiveled towards three men in dark suits, pushing their way past the knot of graduate students by the door. The three men wore guns. Another school shooting, Marianne thought. Where can I... Dr. Marianne Jenner, the tallest of the three men said, flashing a badge. I'm Special Agent Douglas Katz of the FBI. We'd like you to come with us. Marianne said, am I, am I under arrest? No, no, nothing like that. We are acting under direct order of the President of the United States. We're here to escort you to New York. Evan had taken Marianne's hand. She wasn't sure just when. There was nothing romantic in the hand clasp, nor anything sexual. Evan, 25 years her junior and discreetly gay, was a friend, an ally, the only other evolutionary biologist in the department, and the only one who shared Mary's, Marianne's cynical sense of human, humor. Or so we thought, they said to each other whenever any hypothesis proved wrong. Or so we thought. His fingers felt warm and reassuring around her suddenly icy ones. She said, why am I going to New York? I'm afraid we can't tell you that, ma'am, but it's a matter of national security. Me? What possible reason? Special Agent Katz almost, but not quite, hit his impatience at her questions. I wouldn't know, ma'am. My orders are to escort you to the UN Special Mission Headquarters in Manhattan. Marianne looked at her gaping colleagues, at the wide-eyed grad students, at Dr. Curtis, who was already figuring how this could be turned to the advantage of the university. She freed her hand from Evans, and she managed to keep her voice steady. Please excuse me, Dr. Curtis, Dean. It seems I'm needed for something connected with, with the aliens. <laughs> Noah. One more time, Noah Jenner, Jenner rattled the doorknob of the apartment. It felt greasy from too many unwashed palms, and it was still locked. But he knew that Emily was in there. This was the kind of thing that he was always somehow right about. He was right about things that didn't do him any good. Emily, he said softly through the door, please open up. Nothing. Emily, I have nowhere else to go. Nothing. I'll stop, I promise. I won't do sugar cane ever again. The door opened a crack, chained still in place, and Emily's despairing face appeared. She wasn't the kind of girl given to dramatic fury, but her quiet despair was even harder to bear. Not that Noah didn't deserve it. He knew he did. Her fair hair hung limply on either side of her long, sad face. She wore the green bathrobe he liked with the butterfly embroidered on the left shoulder. You won't stop, Emily said. You can't, Noah. You're an addict. It's not an addictive drug, Emily. You know that. 
Not physically, maybe, but it is for you. You won't give it up. I'll never know who you really are. I, I'm sorry, Noah, but just go away. She closed and relocked the door. Noah stood slumped against the dingy wall, waiting to see if anything else would happen. Nothing did. Eventually, as soon as he mustered the energy, he would have to go away. Was she right? Would he never give up sugarcane? It wasn't that it delivered a high. It didn't. No rush of dopamine, no psychedelic illusions, no out-of-body experiences, no lowering of inhibitions. It was just that on sugarcane, Noah felt like he was the person he was supposed to be. The problem was that it was never the same person twice. Sometimes he felt like a warrior, able to face and ruthlessly defeat anything. Sometimes he felt like a philosopher, deeply content to sit and ponder the universe. Sometimes he felt like a little child, dazzled by the newness of a fresh morning. Sometimes he felt like a father, he wasn't, protective of the entire world. Theories said that sugarcane released memories of past lives or stimulated the collective unconscious or made temporarily solid the image of dreams. One hypothesis was that it created a sort of temporary self-induced Korsakoff syndrome, the neurological disorder in which invented selves seem completely true. No one knew how sugarcane really acted on the brain. For some people, it did nothing at all. For Noah, who had never felt he fit in anywhere at all, it gave what he had never had, a sense of solid identity, if only for the hours that the drug stayed in his system. The problem was, it was difficult to hold a job when one day you were nebbishy, sweet-natured Noah Jenner, and the next day you were Attila the Hun. And two days later, you were far too intellectual to wash dishes or make change at a convenience store. Emily had wanted Noah to hold a job, to contribute to the rent, to scrub the floor, to help take the sheets to the laundromat, to be an adult, and the same adult every day. She was right to want that, only... He might be able to give up sugarcane and be the same adult if he only had the vaguest idea who that adult was, which brought him back to the same problem. He didn't fit in anywhere, and he never had. Noah picked up the backpack in which Emily had put his few belongings. She couldn't have left it in the hallway for very long or the backpack would have already been stolen. He made his way down the three flights from Emily's walk up and out into the streets. The October sun shone warmly on his shoulders, on the blocks of, of shabby buildings, on the trash scurling across the dingy streets of New York's Lower East Side. Walking, Noah reflected, was one thing he could do without fitting in. He walked blocks to Battery Park, that green oasis on the tip of Manhattan's steel canyons, leaned on a railing, and looked south. He could just make out the embassy floating in the New York Harbor. Well, no, not the embassy itself, but the shimmer of light off its energy shield, Everybody wanted that energy shield, and especially his sister Elizabeth. The shield kept everything out, short of a nuclear missile. Maybe it would keep that out, too. So far, nobody had tried, although in the two months since the embassy had floated there, three different terrorist groups had tried every other weapon. Nothing got through the shield, although maybe air and light did. They must, right? Even aliens needed to breathe. When the sun dropped below the horizon... The glint off the floating embassy disappeared. Dusk was gathering. Noah would have to make the call if he wanted a place to sleep tonight. Elizabeth or Ryan? His brother wouldn't yell at him as much, 
But Ryan lived upstate in the same little Hudson River town as their mother's college, and Noah would have to hitchhike there. Also, Ryan was often away doing field work for his wildlife agency. Noah didn't think he could cope with Ryan's talkative, sticky, sweet wife right now, so it would have to be Elizabeth. He called his sister's number on his cheap cell. Hello, she snapped. Born angry, their mother always said of Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth was in the right job then. Lizzie, he said, it's Noah. Noah. Yes, I need help. Can I stay with you tonight? He held the cell away from his ear, bracing for her onslaught. Shiftless, lazy, directionless. When it was finally over, he said, just for tonight. They both knew he was lying. But Elizabeth said, come on then, and clicked off without saying goodbye. If he'd had more than a few dollars in his pocket, Noah would have looked for a sugarcane dealer. Since he didn't, he left the park, the wind pricking at him now with tiny needles, and descended to the subway that would take him to Elizabeth's apartment on the Upper West Side. Marianne. The FBI politely declined to answer any of Marianne's questions. Politely, they confiscated her cell and iPad and took her in a sleek black car down Route 87 to New York, through the city to Lower Manhattan, and out to a harbor pier. Gates with armed guards controlled access to a heavily fortified building at the end of the pier. Politely, she was searched and fingerprinted. Then she was politely asked to wait in a small windowless room equipped with a few comfortable chairs, a table with coffee and cookies, and a wall-mounted TV turned to CNN. A news show was covering the weather in Florida. The aliens had shown up four months ago, their ship barreling out from the direction of the sun, which had made it harder to detect until a few weeks before arrival. At first, in fact, the ship had been mistaken for an asteroid, and there had been panic that it would hit Earth. When it was announced that the asteroid was, in fact, an alien vessel, panic had decreased in some quarters and increased in others. A ship? Aliens? Armed forces across the world mobilized. Communication strategy were formed and immediately hacked by the curious and the technologically sophisticated. Seven different religions declared the end of the world. The stock and bond markets crashed, rallied, soared, crashed again, and generally behaved like a reed buffeted by a hurricane. Government puts the world tops linguists, biologists, mathematicians, astronomers, and physicists on top priority standby. Psychics blossomed. People rejoiced and feared and prayed and committed suicide and sent up balloons in the general direction of the moon where the alien ship eventually parked itself in orbit. Contact was immediate in robotic voices that were clearly mechanical and in halting English that improved almost immediately. The aliens, dubbed by the press Denebs because their ship came from the general direction of that bright blue-white star, were friendly. The xenophiles looked smugly triumphant. The xenophobes disbelieved the friendliness and bided their time. The aliens spent two months talking to the United Nations. They were reassuring. This was a peace mission. They were also reticent. They would not show themselves. Not now, they said. We wait. They would not visit the International Space Station nor permit humans to visit their ship. They identified their planet, and astronomers found it once they knew where to look, by the faintly eclipsed light from its orange dwarf star. The planet was in the star's habitable zone, slightly larger than Earth but less dense, water present. It was nowhere near Deneb, but the name stuck. After two months, the aliens requested permission to build what they called an embassy, a floating pavilion in New York Harbor. It would be heavily shielded and would not affect the environment. In exchange, they would share the physics behind their star drive, although not the engineering, with Earth, 
via the internet. The UN went into furious debate. Psychics, physicists salivated. Riots erupted pro and con in major cities across the globe. Conspiracy theorists, some consisting of entire governments, vowed to attack any den of presence on Earth. The UN finally agreed, and the structure went into orbit around Earth, landed without a splash in the harbor, and floated peacefully offshore. After landing, it grew wider and flatter, a half dome that could be considered either an island or a ship. The US government decided it was a ship, and therefore subject to maritime law. And the media began capitalizing and italicizing it, the embassy. Coast Guard craft circled it endlessly. The US Navy had ships and submarines nearby. Airspace above was a no-fly zone, which was inconvenient for jets landing at New York's three major airports. Fighter jets nearby stayed on high alert. And nothing happened. For another two months, the aliens continued to talk through their machines to the UN and only to the UN, and nobody ever saw them. It wasn't known whether they were shielding themselves from Earth's air, microbes, or armies. The embassy was surveilled by all possible means. If anybody learned anything, the information was classified except for a single exchange. Why are you here? To make contact with humanity, a peace mission. A musician set the repeated phrases to music, a sly and humorous refrain without menace. The song, an instant international sensation, was the opening for playfulness about the aliens. Late night comics build monologues around supposed alien sex practices. The embassy became a tourist attraction viewed through telescopes from boats outside the Coast Guard limit, from helicopters outside the no-fly zone. A German fashion designer scored an enormous runway hit with the Denim look, despite the fact that nobody knew how the denims looked. The stock market stabilized as much as it ever did. Quickie movies were shot, some with Denim allies and some with treacherous Denim foes who wanted our women or our gold or our bombs. Bumper stickers proliferated like kazoo. I break for Denim's. Earth is full already, go home. Denims do it invisibly. We'll trade physics for food. The aliens never commented on any of it. They published the promised physics, which only a few dozen people in the world could understand. They were courteous, repetitive, elusive. Why are you here? To make contact with humanity, a peace mission. Marianne stared at the TV where CNN showed footage of disabled children choosing Halloween costumes. Nothing about the discussion, the room, the situation felt real. Why would the aliens want to talk to her? It had to be about her paper. Nothing else made any sense. But no, that didn't make any sense either. Her paper was one of dozens published every year in evolutionary genetics. Why her? Why now? And what was going to happen next? Thank you. Do we do questions now or we don't do questions now? Does anybody have a question? The book's for sale back there. Yes. You can find out what happened. That's not a question, that's a response, which is even better. How much research did you do about the supposed UN response to an alien presence? I didn't do too much in that. I made that up. But I did a lot of research on mitochondrial DNA because that's one of the drivers of this book. And that's what Marianne's paper is about. And it is a re routine kind of paper, but not exactly. <laughs> Other questions, comments? Well, then thank you. You were a wonderful audience. We're going to take a 10-minute break, have a drink, buy some books, have them sign them.
All right, everybody, welcome back. As Ellen mentioned before, this sounds like ski a Skinamax movie. What? You want you want this to read to this? It sets the mood. Um, it's slow jazz. Um, all right, I'll just I'll just keep going until it stops. Um, we have uh, books for sale in the back. Uh, Word Bookstore from Brooklyn uh, is here, and they're actually in Jersey City and anywhere else. Just just those two places. Awesome independent bookstore. Buy independent books. Support your independent local bookstore. Um, they have uh, Yesterday's Kin that Nancy just read from. I love that beginning. I, I so I'm going to read that book. Are you going to buy it? I am. I'm going to buy it. Absolutely. Did you guys buy it? Who bought it? Just. Right? People bought it, got it signed, awesome. And uh, they also have uh, Jack's uh, in the back. Uh, Jack's going to read next, Life and the Preservation. And Jack up here has his collection, Are You There? and other stories that he's going to read from. So Jack's our next reader. In 2001, Jack Skillingstead won Stephen King's On Writing Contest. Not long afterward, he began selling regularly to major science fiction and fantasy markets. To date, he's published more than 30 stories in various magazines, year's best volumes, and original anthologies. And thank you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get into it, you know? <laughs> Take my sweater off. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, exactly. Much, much of Jack's short work has been collected in Are You There and Other Stories. Jack's novel, Life on the Preservation, was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award. Here's Jack Skillingstead. Okay, so um, this is my short story collection. It was originally published by Golden Griffin Press and just was republished this summer by uh, Fairwood Press. Um, I'm going to read the best story in it that can be read in 20 minutes. <laughs> and it's called Everyone Bleeds Through. Uh, it has the distinction, it was originally published in Realms of Fantasy magazine, which is now defunct, but um, it was the only story from Realms that was included in the year's best science fiction. And I'm not sure how that happened, because it's not really science fiction, although you might get there by some securities route. And here it is. At Denny's at 2 o'clock in the morning, I tried to contract my world down to a cup of coffee. Stirring in the cream and sugar, focusing on the cup, I was more or less successful in not thinking about Marcy back in that hotel room in Seattle. More or less. Okay, less. But past experience suggested it would get easier. Then a girl voice said, hey, fuck you. Not to me. I turned. So did the trucker in the red baseball cap sharing my counter space, and both of and a booth of high school boys. The fuck you girl was outside yelling at the taillights of a black F-250, the reflectorized organ plate flashing when the pickup jolted over a flower bed on its way out of the parking lot too fast. The booth kids laughed. Red cap, laconic as hell, turned back to his eggs in USA Today. The girl came in, shouldering through the glass door, fumbling the cigarette, Black leather bomber jacket, a mini net stockings with stretchy Swiss cheese tears revealing very white thighs, ankle boots, 
pixie hair, too much makeup, and it was streaking around the eyes. A safety pin pierced her right eyebrow. She noticed me staring and stared back, briefly, something hot and mysterious clicking between us. Then she looked away and grabbed a book of matches out of the basket by the cash register. She sat at the counter, leaving one stool between us, ordered coffee, lit her cigarette, tapped bitten nails. What's your name, she said to me. John. She breathed smoke. I'm Rena. Hi, I need a ride, Rena said. Hmm. Over the pass, Rena said. I'm not going that way, sorry. Without another word to me, she swiveled around and said to the trucker, I need a ride. He was going that way. A short time later, he got up to use the bathroom. I felt the girl looking at me, so I looked back. Her face was too pale, shiny, damp, the eyes bright in their rings of smudgy black liner. I'm Rena, she said, in a dreamy, drugged voice. Yeah, I want you to drive me. I don't like that guy, Dale, or whatever the fuck his name is. I'm not going over the pass, I said. She wavered, and I thought she was about to faint. Fuck me, she said, slid off the stool and stumbled to the bathroom. A minute later, the trucker reappeared. He looked around and asked me where the girl went. I told him. He paid his check, waited, got cranky, asked was I sure, and then waited some more. He was 40 or so, thick through the shoulders, heavy-bellied. Still waiting, he splintered a toothpick digging between his molars. I said, she was sick. Dale, or whatever the fuck, scowled. Sick? Yeah. How sick? I pointed a finger down my throat. Screw it, Dale said. He glanced in the direction of the ladies' room, then quickly rolled his paper tight under his arm and stalked out. I finished my coffee and ordered one to go. The counterman brought it in a white styrofoam cup with a lid. I paid, but lingered at the door. Rena had been in the bathroom a long time. Her fainty look bothered me. Other things bothered me, too, but I couldn't identify them, not yet. There were no other women in the restaurant, so I stepped around to the ladies' room and knocked softly. Hey, you all right in there, Rena? There was an odd sound on the other side of the door, like a machine humming, an electric motor, something. I pushed the door inward. The volume increased. It wasn't a machine. Rena? I pushed the door open wider, and there was Rena in some kind of meditative posture, lotus, legs pretzeled, back of wrists on knees, smudgy eyes open and staring at something not in the room. The electric machine humming sound came from her throat. All of that was weird, but okay. What bothered me was that she was hovering about 18 inches above the gray tile, casting a little offset shadow. Eventually, I closed my mouth. Rena's eyes refocused and shifted to me. I need a ride. And I know. She stood up, but not the way I would have done it. Rena sort of flowed to her feet, lithe as a fairy, if you know any fairies with ripped stockings and smudged eyeshadow. I mean, any outside certain red light districts. She stood inches away, chin pointed at my chest. Her eyes were big and brown and intense. John, she said, you're supposed to take me. I knew that, too, I replied, and strangely believed it. We drove north less than a mile and caught the 90 east toward the Cascade Mountains. Freezing rain speckled the windshield and the wipers swept it clear. Where exactly are we going, I asked. After my boyfriend. The guy in the pickup? Yes. Why? Something has to happen. Like what? She leaned close to me, her face practically on my shoulder, and she sniffed me. Did it a couple of times, then sat back. You're bleeding through, she said, but I don't think you know it yet. What are you talking about? 
Try closing your eyes, she said. I looked at her, then back at the road. Close your eyes, she said. Go ahead, the road's straight, right? Pretty straight. So do it, close them tight for about two seconds, not like blinking. Silver rain needled in the tunneling high beams. My body felt weird, like I was in a vivid dream. I closed my eyes and saw daylight, a cloud-blown autumnal sky. The road was narrow and muddy. The countryside opened wide, green, desaturated to something approaching done. There was a forest in the distant distance rising up into foothills out of which thrust the brutal face of a mountain. And it was more than seeing. I felt cold wind on my face and hands, hands that were gripping a polished wooden handle. Whatever contraption I was sitting on jolted over the muddy road. Rena sat next to me wearing a heavy wool cloak with the hood drawn up. She pulled the hood back and smiled. A right scar intersected her left eyebrow. Something whistled and I felt hot steam on the back of my neck. I opened my eyes. The wiper swept the windshield clear. My heart pounded with thrilling intensity. The vision translated to freedom in my blood. What was that? Smell me, Rena said. I swung the car into the breakdown lane, stopped, turned the dome light on, looked at her. Smell you, I said. Yes, she grinned and pulled her shirt open at the throat. Come close. I unbuckled my seatbelt and let it retract and leaned over and my face close to her exposed neck, my nose practically touching her collarbone. I wanted to touch her with everything I had, but kept my hands awkwardly hovering away from her leg, her breast. What do I smell like, she asked. A girl, youth, promise, joy, temptation without consequences, fun. I said, it's pine and something else. Cinnamon? Oh, you smell the, you smell the cinnamon. More like I can taste it. What's it mean? What happened when I closed my eyes? Tell me. There are other worlds, Rena said. A lot of them. All running more or less parallel. Events run parallel, too. Motifs endlessly repeated. Even the people are the same. You and I, here and now, there and then. A thousand theirs, a thousand thens, ten thousand. All occurring simultaneously. Once in a while, your core personality bleeds across from the home place, the center. It happens to everyone eventually. They're the ones who look like they know something nobody else knows. It's kind of complicated, and what's wrong? I said, for a second, I remembered you. I mean, really remembered you. Rena's face turned into a huge smile and a pair of drowning pool eyes. She flung herself at me and kissed my mouth, and I was gone, immortal, no longer contingent. Then she bounced back to her side of the seat and laughed at me. Johnny, she said, I knew you would. Now picture a woman named Marcy Welch, back in the Kennedy Hotel, Seattle, Washington. Her hair can be long or short, it's short. Her eyes blue or green or brown, it doesn't matter. The main thing to picture about Marcy is that she's alone. Maybe she's finishing off that bottle of room service Merlot. Maybe she's in that big bed occupying a fractional portion of mattress space, drinking the wine and watching pay-per-view. Or you could think of her lying there in the dark by herself, or standing in the shower, or at the mock Edwardian writing desk concentrating over a note. A woman with 25 years of unhappiness named Roger crowding her toward 50, in fear of her lost powers, 
her loneliness, her shrinking future, alone in the Kennedy Hotel, where she thought she had flown from misery at last. Marcy, the trapeze artist, flying without a net, leaving Roger behind forever, flying with the trapeze artist's faith that her companion, the one who was so good in practice, would catch her chalked hands when, time, when the showtime arrived. So, in or out of the bed, drinking or not drinking the Merlot, in or not in the shower, sitting at the writing desk or not sitting at the writing desk, it doesn't matter. That was maybe the smallest room she'd ever been in, but with the biggest exit. Now, Rena. Parked in the breakdown lane, I'd forgotten, I'd gotten a flash. Not even really a memory, more like a sudden pulsation of significant emotion. It started when I smelled her throat. Add the quickening of my blood while we sat there and she explained about simultaneous worlds. Then something electric surged through me and ignited an image. That's a lake and sunlight on a white painted porch. Rena in a flowing thing apparently woven out of light. Rena herself. This was our place. We made it outside and beyond other illusions and a non-verbal, operatically proportioned emotional theme, love, as in, I've known you forever, and I love you. Holy and without reserve, all barriers down, the moat drained, guards sent home, perculus raised and locked open, all my defensive weapons acquired in life, lives, reforged to plowshares. It smells nice here, piney, and the flavor of cinnamon tea. We came up fast on a tractor-trailer rig. The Subaru's headlights glinted on the plates. Washington, Idaho, Montana. I swung into the opposite lane and accelerated to pass. In moments, I tucked back into the eastbound lane, which, we, which climbed and curved until the rig, all strung with amber lights, was lost behind us. He's going to be stopped just a little farther. How do you know that, I asked. I just do, dear. A minute later, a pickup appeared ahead of us, halted in the breakdown lane. Pull in behind him, Rena said. Then, with a puzzled look, but not too close. I don't know why. I did that. F-250, organ plate, the left rear end resting on the rim of a shredded tire. We sat 50 yards or so behind it, engine idling, rain falling through the headlights. No boyfriend in sight. Where is he? Rena shrugged. I don't know everything. She popped the passenger door and climbed out. Seizing a moment of passi passing lucidity and guilt, I opened my cell phone, but, could, but uh, got only a faded signal. Maybe if I wandered around a little, I could pick it up. But I, felt the phone, but I left the phone in the car when I got out to join Rena. I felt free. And the guilt and fear that had been building around Marcy sloughed away and struck me as inconsequential. We were all bigger than what we appeared. My breath steamed in the mountain air. The rain fell icy cold on my head and neck. Rena and I cast long black shadows in the fanned glare of the Subaru's headlamps. A car went by, then another, then it was quiet on the pass. Rena's drippy, pixie hair was flattened to her skull. Still cute, though. She closed her eyes tight. A minute or so elapsed. Rena, wait. I sighed deeply, then closed my eyes, too. 
and another world opened around me. This time it wasn't mountains and grassy vistas. I found myself on a broad promenade encircling midway up a building that might have been a mile tall. Rena was there, and we were standing next to an abandoned rickshaw-like contraption with a broken wheel. The sky was painted with sunset clouds. You couldn't see the rest of the city unless you stepped right up to the retaining wall that enclosed the promenade. We were that high up on the side of this stupendous structure, not a skyscraper, but a sky penetrator. The rest of the city spread out below us, densely packed to the horizon in every direction, blocks and towers and spires and buttresses, plumes venting steam, checkerboard lights, traffic crawling between the buildings like sluggish yellow blood, a distant rumble and clangor. I looked away, feeling kind of flickery. Rena smiled. You're not doing too well this time. You better open your eyes. They are open. Here they are, dear, but not back on the road. You're too porous. I doubt you even know what's going on. I'm okay, I said, though I did feel unsteady and only half comprehended the situation, if that. Yes, you're okay, but don't move, huh? She walked away. The promenade was wide as a superhighway and empty except for us. Something big came around the curve, lumbering but fast, like Dumbo the flying elephant. It even looked a bit like an elephant, only the trunk was some kind of articulated cable, thick as a telephone pole and bent like an inverted question mark. On the fluted end of it sat a little man in a blue helmet, hands manipulating a pair of levers. I was safe by the wall, but Rena had just stepped into Dumbo's path. I bolted for her, yelling, and my eyes opened in the first world, the world of mountain darkness and icy rain. Instead of a midget-driven elephant, there came roaring out of the dark curve of the pass a tractor-trailer rig, white lights like a screen. The driver started to swing toward the breakdown lane, but he still would have hit Rena if I hadn't yanked her out of the way. Tumbled on the road, my body covering Rena, I saw the boyfriend. He had his cell in hand, keypad lit up periwinkle, his face an astonished white mask. Just before the semi, missing my Subaru by a comfortable margin, plowed him into his Ford, plowed him and his Ford into the side of the mountain. I guess he had a faded signal too, and had gone off to try to unfade it. Dale, or whatever the fuck, slumped against the fender of his cab. Red hat clutched in his ape's, in his ape's paw, weeping at the mangled pickup in the dead man. Rain fell continuously. Rena and I stood on the other side of the road. Was that supposed to happen, I said? I guess so. She looked like she had invisible sandbags slung over her shoulders. When you bleed between worlds, she said, the trajectories of fate sharpen. All this makes some kind of had-to-be sense, or it's supposed to. I held her hand, and she squeezed hard and pulled me around. Hey, Johnny. I looked at her wet face. I'm slipping away. I can feel it. Don't, I said. I can't help it. We'll meet again. We already have, already will. Kiss me before we forget who we are. I kissed her on the mouth. But midway through it, I began to feel strange about her, then stranger. We broke apart from each other, and I couldn't really see her face anymore. Dark rain swept between us. Then Rena screamed and lurched toward the wreckage, calling some lost boy's name in her cracking voice. 
I sat alone in my car and didn't remember any of the strange stuff. My head hurt. Rain ticked on the roof. Beyond the flooded windshield, blue and white lights strobed and highway patrolmen in rain slickers milled around watching the tow truck. Rena was in the back seat of one of the cruisers, and I found myself alone in the unguarded fortress of my heart. Moat drained, portcullis raised, etc. Pian piranha flopped in the mud. A lonely wind blew through the open gate. That's what was left over. It's what you get for picking up a hitcher. The end of fun and games, not the beginning. When I shut my eyes, I saw only the usual dark. I started the car, turned around, and headed towards Seattle. As soon as I cleared the fade zone, I speed-dialed Marcy's cell. It went straight to voicemail. I retrieved the number from the Kennedy Hotel and asked the front desk to connect me to Marcy's room. The front, or the phone started ringing and went on ringing. Well, it was almost dawn, and she might have been a deep sleeper. I wouldn't know, having always, having always left um, before the night was over, especially this final time. I used to be that way. The phone rang and rang until the front desk informed me needlessly that the room wasn't answering, and I told the desk clerk, he better get up there with a pass key. Maybe I shouted it. Trajectories of fate. Everybody bleeds through, eventually. It's nice here on the lake. The water is sapphire, because that's Rena's favorite color. It looks painted. This is a shifting place where memories converge around the core of our beings. A safe place where I am myself and Rena is herself and we can sort things out. It's beautiful here. But even when Rena steps through the door to join me, there will remain a terrible aspect to it. There are a lot of things to sort out. The door opens behind me and I smell cinnamon. Thank you, Nancy. Thank, thank you to, to everyone for coming tonight. Um, as I said earlier, uh, Jack's got uh, that one for sale. We also have Word Bookstore in the back that has, uh, has yesterday's kin. And um, uh, remind me again the name of the... Uh, Life, on the Life on the Preservation for Sale. So uh, go ahead and uh, buy the books, buy drinks, bring, them, bring the books up to get signed. You can try to bring the drinks up to get signed. I don't think that's going to work as well, but you can try it. And uh, we'll see you next month. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks for coming, and uh, you know, stick around. Have a good You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always... Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.